Hello, everyone. Welcome to our interview portion of our show for today. We are super, super excited to be able to have another interview for you guys because, as you know, with COVID, it's we are it's really, really hard to get somebody in the station because we're not allowed to do that. And it's just been difficult because people are away or we have to get them on Zoom. And it's been really, really difficult. But we are super, super excited to be able to have an interview with Dr. Um, Courtney Lewis. Um, who is a professor here um, in the anthropology department um, and in the College of Arts and Sciences here at U of SC. So we are super, super excited to be able to have the wonderful opportunity to interview her. Um, and so as a lot of our listeners know, hopefully you are a frequent listener, but if you're not, um, so our show Passport Playlist, we normally focus on international issues. Um, we normally in a non-COVID semester, we would be interviewing international students and talking to them about their home countries and things like that. But with COVID, we really haven't had that many international students. So we've been looking outward, you know, into international news, but we've also been taking the past few weeks to really look inward. Um, we had an interview two weeks ago with Dr. Stuart Schrader, who is a professor at Johns Hopkins University. And he looked and we, we talked to him um, about sort of police brutality and police culture in the United States. And then this week, we're going to be talking with Dr. Um, Lewis sort of about the situation with Native peoples in the United States, both historically and currently. Um, so we're taking a look again, sort of inward onto our domestic issues, because our domestic issues, of course, influence our foreign policy and can also help us to draw similarities between ourselves and our international allies. Um, so that is sort of what we are taking with us into our interview today. DJ Iroh is here with me. Thankfully, she is coming at you live, not live because the interview is recorded, um, <laughs> but she's right from Hill, South Carolina on Wednesday. Today's Wednesday. We record this early. So if, you know, if there's some big international thing regarding this topic that happens between now and Saturday and you're like, why didn't they cover that? It's because we are coming at you from the past and we did not know. So with that, DJ Iroh, do you want to talk a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. I really agree with everything you said. Um, but yeah, I really thought that this would be a very interesting uh, show to have because our guest today is from is an actual citizen of a Native nation. I won't spoil which one yet. I'll let her introduce that for us. Um, but yeah, and I figured that'd be a really interesting thing to do since we are an internationally based show. Um, but our federal documents from the United States of America uh, represent uh, or identifies uh, Native nations as uniquely foreign yet domestic. Um, and so I figured this would be an absolutely like really cool uh, once in a lifetime type of show to have and it'd be a great um, show to really broadcast some issues that I personally hadn't heard a lot about until very recently. Um, so I figured it'd be a great way to educate our listeners. And in uh, saying that, uh, Professor Lewis, would you like to introduce yourself? Hi, thank you so much, Sarah, and uh, thank you, Bella. Uh, thank you for having me on the show. I am going to begin by introducing myself in Cherokee. So that means hello, everyone. Uh, I'm so happy to be here with you today, and I'm very thankful for the listeners who are joining us for this program. I'm Dr. Courtney Lewis. I'm an associate professor here at U of SC. I'm in the anthropology department where I study economic anthropology. Uh, and I'm also in the Institute for Southern Studies. Uh, and finally, I am a citizen of the Cherokee Nation located in Oklahoma, which is one of three Cherokee nations. The other is the Eastern Band of Cherokee Indians in North Carolina and the United Gatua Band in Oklahoma. Wow. I never knew that there were like so many different um, versions of the Cherokee Nation all scattered all across the United States. But that's so that's so interesting to like really learn. Uh, well, the first split, of course, happened after the Trail of Tears. Uh, the majority of the Cherokee people were uh, forcibly marched to Oklahoma uh, after being held in concentration camps around the South. Uh, and the Eastern Band of Cherokee Indians were able to strategize staying in North Carolina. Uh, so that was the first split. Uh, the second split happened uh, when the Cherokees arrived in Oklahoma, uh, where the what is called the UKB, the United Kahua Band, split off from the primary Cherokee Nation. So today we have three Cherokee Nations, uh, 
we all speak the same language. The dialects are a little bit different, uh, but we all uh, still share a mostly similar culture. Mm. That's so cool. Mm. I think so. Yeah, it's it's <laughs> interesting because I think, you know, I mean, obviously regionally in the United States, we have different dialects. Um, and not really accents, because dialects are very different from accents, if you've taken a linguistics course. Um, <laughs> but I think it's really, really interesting that there's still that dialectal, or dialectical, I don't know the proper word, um, difference between the different nations. I think that's really, really cool. Um, and it's also cool to hear some Cherokee, because a lot of the music that we play when it's international is in a different language. Um, so it was really interesting to have that aspect as well from a foreign, but also domestic entity. Um, because the legal jargon is always confusing, and I have looked into this, and I still don't understand it. So I'm glad to have a source here with us. Um, so how did you decide to follow your career path, um, and specifically in regards to economic anthropology? Because I know that there are four sort of traditional divides within the field. So how did you decide to go on this path? Well, I always knew that I would follow in my dad's footsteps. And he was a professor and he was an activist. Um, but it really wasn't until I was an undergraduate at the University of Michigan that I decided to pursue a degree in economics um, in order to specifically study economic development and economic justice efforts on reservations. Um, I then got my PhD in economics after that. Uh, and I realized going through the graduate program that economics would not be able to do what I needed to do. So when I went to pursue my PhD, uh, I did that in economic anthropology and that allowed me to work closely with Native Nation communities, uh, which was my primary objective. Wow, that's, that's really beautiful. I love hearing people's stories whenever they have like such like a deeply rooted story and passion. I really love to hear people talk about that. Um, and just to like see you carry that through multiple levels of like college and post-grad and all that stuff. Um, it's just, it's really inspiring to see somebody like really find a passion like that. And but, it's definitely, um, I don't mean to interrupt you Sarah, it's definitely interesting to me because <laughs> as a senior now, um, I actually applied to 10 different PhD programs and I got rejected from all of them. Um, so I'm still processing that, but it's really inspiring to hear someone who like just kept going with it and really found what they were interested in because I am sort of reevaluating that right now. Um, and so it's definitely interesting to hear someone like who really trudged through it and found out they were interested in and really fought to study that. Um, so it's really, really interesting to hear about that. Yeah, and I just want to encourage the students. Really, I took, um, several years off between my master's and my PhD uh, to recalibrate and to think about what I really wanted out of a PhD, to think about what I wanted to do. I ended up working corporate. I worked for a finance firm uh, while I was thinking through this stuff and I took the time and it ended up being the best move I could have made. So rather than jumping right into a PhD program, I not only um, had that time to really think about what I wanted to do, I came into a PhD program with a whole new set of skills um, and coming from someone who's now judging PhD applications, uh, having students come in with this kind of independence um, and this kind of thoughtfulness really makes a difference. Uh, so it helped me as a graduate student to actually have that time. And I would, I would tell students, you know, please do take your time. You know, it's, there isn't a rush in kind of moving to the next level. It's always going to be there for you. Um, so if this isn't working out, I'm off, you know, um, do something completely different, uh, something unproductive that will still pay you to work uh, and, then, and then come back to it and you might have some surprising answers. Yeah, and I think that especially in the U.S., we see a lot of pressure to, like, go straight from undergrad to a master's to a job um, and really not have time off. And so I think that it's important, and it's also really interesting because you're very successful now, but it's like you didn't have all the answers then. And I think that that's a really important um, skill set to have. This was a bit of a tangent, but DJ Iroh's next question is a bit related to the whole field of academia. 
Yeah, actually, we were having like a really fun discussion before uh, we started recording this interview about your Zoom background, because it's such a lovely, lovely landscape. Um, and we wanted to know where it was. And you were actually talking a little bit about how it ties into uh, your research. So could you tell us a little bit about that? Um, about my Zoom background or about my current research? <laughs> uh, research. <laughs> Um, so the, the Zoom background that I have behind me, if I can describe it for people, is um, a mountainside in the fall, uh, and behind that is another mountain that is snow-capped, and that is from the Great Smoky Mountains, where I did my first research project with the Eastern Band of Cherokee Indians, and that was focused on American Indian entrepreneurship, uh, and what came out of that was the very first ethnography solely dedicated to the topic of American Indian entrepreneurship. Uh, today, I'm starting a new project uh, which builds off of that. And this project looks at American Indian, what are called foodpreneurs, right? So this is the intersection between entrepreneurship studies and food sovereignty studies. Uh, and that was my original proposal uh, of course, I started this work last year and we had COVID come in. Uh, so mm -hmm. now, with as with a lot of research currently, um, this is turned to focusing on how American Indian business owners in uh, the food sovereignty movement are faring through these COVID-19 times. Uh, so I did three panels last spring. I have uh, seven YouTube interview videos uh, with indigenous chefs who are also demonstrating their some of their favorite recipes uh, and that's where my project is heading right now yeah. oh that's so cool and um sorry i don't want to take away from dj blue i just wanted to hop in and ask a question really fast but could you like explain food sovereignty a little bit to us perhaps for our listeners who aren't super familiar with that phrase so when we talk about food sovereignty, especially when we talk about indigenous food sovereignty, and even more specifically, when we talk about American Indian food sovereignty, um, we are talking, and this is at its most basic, about American Indians um, right to practice autonomy over their foods and diets. So let me give you one example. I wrote an article quite a while back on um, wild gathering. And this specific article was about a plant called a ramp. And this is a wild onion that grows in the Appalachians. Um, and what had happened at the time was that ramps became very, very popular in the kind of foodie society cuisine. Um, and you had a lot of people that decided to, um, without very much or any training really at all, go into the mountains and just harvest the heck out of all of the ramps. And ramps are very slow growing. It takes 10 years for a ramp patch to actually um, establish itself. So mm -hmm. what happened was the Great Smoky Mountains completely shut down ramp harvesting. Now, this is a problem because the Great Smoky Mountains was located adjacent to the Eastern Band of Cherokee Indians. So that cut off their ability to harvest ramps, which they had been doing for easily over 10,000 years sustainably, right? Mm -hmm. um, so this ended up uh, turning into a court case uh, and it's still in play today uh, as to the legality of harvesting ramps and who can harvest ramps. Um, other plants have kind of taken the forefront. Uh, there's a plant called Sochan, which uh, Eastern Band citizens can now get a permit to harvest. Uh, but these are some of the issues that Native people face uh, when they are trying to feed themselves. Right? Mm -hmm. um, so the ability to uh, feed ourselves, the ability to grow our own foods, uh, and the ability to access these foods in a healthy way. Wow, that's so interesting. And I've also heard a little bit of talk about things like food deserts, especially among um, uh, like places where predominantly people of color reside, um, where it's what, 20 miles, perhaps even more from the nearest grocery store, but you know, perhaps there's a McDonald's or something like that, and there's only access to certain foods that are going to like um, end up shortening your lifespan or giving you more health problems or 
there's probably actually a lot of access to liquor store, but because of the way everything's been gerrymandered, because of the way everything's been set up, it's so incredibly far to get to um, something like that and to actually have food sovereignty in a way, like you said, and have an actual choice over your food. Absolutely, because remember that for many Native people, they were taken off of their homelands uh, and moved to places that were terrible for agriculture because these were the least valued lands. Uh, so they were taken away from their ability to feed themselves. Um, they were, you know, put into the commodities food program, which as we know is, is terrible as far as, as human health goes. Um, so they do end up in these, um, what we call food voids. So in the, in the indigenous food sovereignty movement, a desert is actually flourishing with food, right? Mm -hmm. uh, so when we talk about these issues, uh, we tend to use the word food voids, uh, even though that's not the most common term, but that is exactly correct. It's, it's part of uh, what we're trying to rectify today. Yeah. Yeah, and I know I um, follow a lot of sort of native um, content producers on TikTok. And I know I've seen one girl who's Inuk in Canada and then also a girl who lives in Alaska and they've sort of taken videos in their grocery stores and the prices of like a bag of chips or, you know, hamburger buns is like, it's like $10. And it's like, I can go to Trader Joe's here and buy a bag of chips for like $3. Um, but that was something that I also found really, really interesting. And I'm not sure if it's like because of taxes maybe, or just import costs. Um, but then also, I know the girl who is Inuk um, that I follow, she talks a lot about how Inuk culture consumes um, beluga and how it's sort of, it's really criticized by non-Native people who are saying, that's horrible, how could you do that? And so I think it's also really interesting the culture around like food, not like discrimination, but sort of like saying, oh, well, that's horrible and people use the word savage and they say that's so savage how could you do that and it's like well that's a charged word <laughs> yes exactly number one but number two it's like it's just interesting how like you said um with the native onions growing in the Appalachians they were all harvested just um sustainably but then people come in and they say how could you do this this is horrible um, so I think that's really, really interesting. So is that also a part of the whole food sovereignty movement? Absolutely. Um, and I do recommend um, a movie called Angry Anook. Um, I will just give a warning that it does have um, animal hunting in it. So that may be challenging for some people to watch. Uh, but of course, all of these nations that are in the colder climates have faced a lot of issues with things like uh, laws being passed against seal harvesting because what's going on is we have giant corporations uh, mass harvesting right like the baby seal clubbing times uh, you have laws passed but these laws don't have any exceptions for native people so we're taking away an entire food source and how they're getting through the winters so then they're forced into grocery stores with these exorbitant prices um, but that's even taking a step back that's assuming that they were even allowed hunting and fishing rights on their own territory, which is not always the case. So um, initially, when these, um, when the United States starts taking over land in these areas, they actually pass laws forbidding Native peoples from hunting or fishing. Um, and this is how you create a dependency. Okay. So mm -hmm. kind of going off of this, um, so what, are, what was it about the intersection of sort of economic development and sort of um, allowances, I guess you could say, and native rights that intrigued you enough to study it in a professional sense? Um, and then what makes this intersection of study so important? That, that is a very good question. Um, so there are many, many pressing issues in the main country today but for me, economic sovereignty, which is the ability of Native nations to control their own finances, to control their own economic pathways, uh, for me, that's the foundation of political sovereignty. Uh, so when I was thinking about what I wanted to do, um, 
economic sovereignty called me, but also I had an aptitude for economics and math. Uh, and that really led me to focus my talents in that direction. So it was something that was very important to me, but something I also had an aptitude for. Um, and not, not to get off on a, a tangent again, but I think as an undergrad, it sometimes feels as if you're pigeonholed into certain pathways. And they're usually based on choosing either between, you know, what your aptitude and talents are versus maybe what your interests are, which don't always match up. Um, and for me, you know, I got creative, right? I could have gone into a straight economics degree. I could have gone into mathematical studies. Um, but I really wanted to apply my skills. I really wanted to take my talent and apply it where it could do the most good. Um, so as an undergraduate, I really encourage students to get creative in their thinking, right? Um, if you love music, but you're a terrible musician, there are many ways to work in the music industry. You can be a graphic designer. You can even be an accountant. You can be an anthropological consultant for a record label. Um, it, it really worked out for me and I do encourage students to, to think out of the box with this. Yeah. Yeah, I definitely agree. And I think that um, at the university, I found that there are a lot of professors who are willing to have those conversations of like, how can I mold this into studying this thing that seems completely unrelated, but actually is very related. Um, so I think that's definitely an interesting concept. And I think especially during COVID, we've seen how a lot of things have really been shifted and changed. And not only in like people are working from home, but also in the ways that we think about sort of, you know, for example, access to Wi-Fi or access to, to technology, which we found that we really need, but we've also seen that a lot of people don't have access to, or also with, you know, health. Um, that's a big thing, obviously, with the pandemic that we think about, but also different levels of access to health. And also, I believe, it, I don't remember, maybe it was the Navajo Nation that had this huge issue with COVID. And they sort of weren't getting aid from the government. And so that's also something that we've had to think a lot about. And so I think that COVID has been beneficial, has not been beneficial, but has in our, I guess you could say, desperation for answers, we've found different kinds of solutions that sort of bring together different fields of knowledge. Um, and that can help bring attention to a lot of issues that we previously weren't thinking a lot about. Um, but one question that I do have, so as far as economic sovereignty, what are some of the ways in which the federal government has in the past or is currently sort of hindering economic sovereignty? Because I'm not super familiar with the economic side of things when it comes to native reservations and nations. So, and I don't know if our audience is either. So if you could explain that a little bit. So, there's a lot of deep roots uh, with issues in economic sovereignty. It really was not until uh, the Indian Self-Determination Act in the late 1970s that native nations controlled their own finances. Uh, so the federal government owes native nations money, but it was really the Bureau of Indian Affairs that got to decide where that money went to. Um, they decided what the price was for resource extraction um, which they would artificially deflate so that Native nations um, would not actually realize the full benefit of uh, resource development. Um, the BIA funneled millions and millions of dollars out of Native nations. Uh, there was a very, very big lawsuit, uh, the Cobell lawsuit, that came out about this. Um, so in the past, the BIA had control over Native Nation finances. Uh, that changed uh, at the beginning of uh, the 80s when uh, we had the act passed. Native Nations began to uh, train enough people to take over their own finances again. Uh, but then this was a real uh, threat to states. So let me give you an example of the Indian Gaming and Regulatory Act. So across the United States, we have... Um, some laws about gaming, mainly these are at the state level, whether a state wants to have um, a gambling industry or not, and at what level. Uh, but when Native Nations started their own gaming industry, um, states began to say that they wanted a piece of that pie and they wanted to control it. 
they lost that in court, okay, because Native nations are not located within states, okay? They are their own separate jurisdictional district. So if North Carolina wants to have gaming, South Carolina doesn't get a say in that. And that's the way Native nations are placed, right? They are entirely separate entities from states. Uh, so what state lawmakers did is uh, once they lost in court, they developed an entirely new act called the Indian Gaming and Regulatory Act. And this act essentially created a whole new set of federal laws just for Native Nation gaming. So this doesn't apply to any other casino. It doesn't apply to any other gambling. Um, and it controls Native Nations from the ground up. So it controls um, how they can spend their money who they can give their money to, um, these kind of things. Uh, and there are different levels of um, committees and commissions that this has to pass to. And in addition, uh, this forces Native nations to form what are called compacts, which are contracts with states. And in these compacts, states uh, generally today will demand a payment from Native nation gaming. Um, and we can talk a little bit more about that, but you see where the money starts getting reached out, right, in ways that other casinos um, owned by non-Native nations do not have to abide by. Um, mm -hmm. Those are just a couple of examples, yeah. Okay, gotcha. Yeah, mm -hmm. I think that's a good explanation because I'm not familiar with it, and I don't know if any of our listeners are either. So I'm glad that we could get a bit more of an explanation because it helps everything a little bit more. Um, I think that this is a good time to um, play a little bit of music. Dr. Lewis provided us with a great playlist of a lot of different Native music, um, and I have a bunch of, de of details on it. So we are going to be right back with you, and we are going to play some music provided to us by Dr. Lewis. All right, everybody. Welcome back to Passport Playlist. We thank you for coming back. Um, we're very excited about this interview. For those of you who maybe are just tuning in, we are here with Dr. Courtney Lewis, member of the Cherokee Nation um, and professor of anthropology uh, with a lot of research in um, the economic development of Native nations um, and economic and food sovereignty. Uh, these Native Nations. Um, before we went on break, we were just kind of talking about why economic sovereignty is so important, and we were talking about um, a little bit about the terminology of what is a Native Nation, uh, what are their political, I suppose, powers, um, and it kind of made me think like a lot of our listeners might not know the difference between what is a Native Nation um, and what are the powers of the Native Nation? Uh, what is a tribe? Uh, just kind of the terminology. So if you wouldn't mind breaking that down for us, that would be really great. Yeah, absolutely. I'd love to. Uh, so in the United States, we have something uh, kind of unique called a federal recognition process. So this is a federal process for quote unquote recognizing Native Nations as political entities. So if a native nation can fulfill a very long and very expensive process of proving that it can satisfy seven categories that establish its historical presence as a political entity, then that native nation enters into a contemporary formal relationship with the US federal government. So this is a process where native nations apply um, and if approved, it solidifies this formal relationship between the Native Nation and the federal government. So that means that that Native Nation would fall under all federal laws that are written for uh, American Indians and Native Nations um, and has full rights and responsibilities associated with that relationship. Um, this process has many issues. <laughs> it takes Native Nations literally decades to move through this process. And again, it is a very expensive process. Mm -hmm. uh, but this reaffirmation of political status is extremely important because Native nations are not racial groups. 
They are political entities with citizens that they must answer to. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, that is what a federally recognized Native nation uh, has to go through. Um, what kind of powers do they have? So once you've established yourself as a political entity, you have um, similar powers to other governmental entities. So Native nations uh, have the power of taxation over their citizens. Uh, they can create their own court systems. Uh, these court systems do have to fall under certain laws, uh, but they can create their own court systems. Uh, they can create their own healthcare systems, schools, services for their citizens. Uh, so at that point, they can operate uh, much like any other governmental entity. That's really interesting. I remember taking your class and I remember say, you saying something where it was like, in our minds, we should kind of correlate them to be um, just slightly more powerful than a state. Is that correct? That is correct. So uh, if we're going to talk, talk technicalities, uh, the native nations actually have a higher status than states mm -hmm. uh, because uh, we are not states and we have this direct federal relationship. Mm -hmm. so, yes, that is correct. I remember, I'm oh, sorry. sorry, you go ahead. <laughs> um, I have a question. So I know that over the summer there was this McGirt v. Oklahoma decision um, out of the Supreme Court. And I know a little bit about it, but I wanted to sort of ask you about your opinion on it and what you think it, and if you could also explain it, because I don't know if the listeners know about it, um, if you could kind of explain it and how it relates to this political sovereignty and the sovereignty of Native nations, as you were saying, as like different entities in the States. So the McGirt case is very, very complicated. So I will try to, to sum it up as best I can. Um, but for folks who are listening, if you're interested in the McGirt case, I do recommend uh, looking up the work of Dr. Robert Miller. He has produced a couple of articles. There's going to be a book coming out and you can see some of his lectures online and he gives a phenomenal uh, summary of the McGirt case, but in a very accessible way. Uh, so if you want something that's more like a half an hour to an hour explanation of what's going on, but still accessible, I recommend his work. Uh, so without going into the details of McGirt, um, this case was very interesting because Oklahoma technically only had one reservation, and that's the Osage Reservation. Now, if any of my students are listening, that would sound kind of strange because Oklahoma has an enormous Native Nation and American Indian population, but their land is not technically called a reservation. It's called a jurisdictional district. So this is a case where we have an Indian country, multiple different kinds of lands and land ownership and multiple different jurisdictions. So with the McGirt case, this was basically um, a case where if, if the case found in favor of the native nations, very little would change for them. Right, so the land would go from being a jurisdictional district, and this is being argued right now, to a reservation. But I just want to make clear that this did not give any Native nations land. Okay, this was already land that they had. The question was, what is the status of this existing land? Mm -hmm. um, now, the reason this case was brought to court was that uh, the prosecutors were hoping that the judge would not find in favor of Native nations. If that had happened, um, many Native nations, it, it would have torn down the political sovereignty of Native nations. Uh, mm -hmm. It would have um, potentially had catastrophic effects on land holdings for Native nations, um, jurisdictional issues. Um, it was a very blatant attack on the political sovereignty of Native nations. Um, but judge did find in favor of uh, Native Nation political sovereignty as a whole, which is what was on the table, frankly. Um, so now what we have is this kind of question of, is this now a reservation instead of a jurisdictional district? And I know that's, that's kind of a detailed um, question, but it's a very important one for those who are studying American Indian studies, uh, policy and law. Mm -hmm. Gotcha, interesting. 
-hmm. And thank you for the recommendation, because I think that that'll be good for a lot of our listeners and me um, to look (laughs) up more about it. Um, So thank you for that. And kind of going off of this tangent, DJ Iroh, you looked like you wanted to say something. Um, Yeah, I was just going to say, I remember like you had mentioned uh, the Osage Nation. And I just remembered like in your class, you had told us a little bit about how they in particular, I mean, all Native nations have really been under fire at least a few times historically by either state or federal governments. Um, but the Osage in particular were kind of targets for a while, weren't they, um, by both individuals and like state and federal governments because like you told us quite ironically, like they had moved the Osage out onto a particular reservation and the Osage actually bought that land and they had put them on inerable land that they couldn't really farm, that really wasn't good for growing anything. It turns out the reason why after they bought it, they found out that it was so inerable was because it was sitting on like a massive like oil field. And so they got a lot of money. Absolutely. At the time, the Osage were the wealthiest people in the world. Mm -hmm. Um, And that did not go well for settler colonial society, uh, who generally tends to lash out when um, BIPOC people in the United States attain a certain level of economic independence. Uh, So at the time, and there is a movie that is currently being filmed, um, and I don't know if they're gonna go with the same title as the book, but I'll just just say in general, it's regarding the Osage murders. Um, There was a whole rash of murders where people would marry into a family and then, uh, excuse me, non-native people would marry into an Osage family and then start killing people in order to get the head rights to have access to that oil. Mm-hmm. Um, and this became such a problem uh, that the federal government got involved. Um, so mm-hmm. the OH have been physically attacked uh, for their wealth, but also they've been attacked politically. In just uh, 2010, the state of Oklahoma made the case that the OSH reservation did not exist. Um, mm-hmm. So the attacks continue, right? The attacks mm-hmm. continue. Oh, and just to clarify for our listeners, from what I remember, a head right uh, in terms of the Osage was when the basically the Osage government nation was in charge of that oil refinery and each citizen that was on the books and their family would receive a certain amount of money um, from, it, it was sort of similar to a stock, I suppose, but you really don't have to invest first, you just have to be a... Right, it's a, it's a dividend payment from a business mm-hmm. at- um, so a head right would be your your dividend into that right. Mm-hmm. Um, so it would be your right to receive money back from that business that's owned by the Osage government. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. And so people literally targeted them and married in there and then started killing them in order to get those head rights in order to get money. And didn't you say it spurred like the creation or development somehow of the FBI? Mm-hmm. It sure did. Yeah, and that's a crazy story. You never would have thought that the FBI was created for that reason. Yeah, it was, um, it, it was let's say it, it uh, grew considerably <laughs> after that. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's just insane. So going kind of along this tangent, Um, Can you describe some of the leading issues which are facing Native Americans and Native populations as a whole in 2021? And then um, how about certain issues that are facing the Cherokee Nation specifically, either the Eastern Band or your own nation in Oklahoma? So today, at this moment, of course, Native Nations are facing um, severe health care issues. These issues were in critical condition before this year, but are now extreme in the face of COVID-19, with American Indians having the highest mortality rate of any group in the United States. Um, And this has frightening consequences that that many other U.S. populations don't have to consider. Uh, So many Native nations are in the process of reclaiming cultural practices that either have been or are still currently being challenged. So the loss of our knowledge keepers, the loss of our elders to COVID-19 is nothing less than catastrophic for these efforts. 
for the Cherokee Nation, uh, we are currently at nearly 13,000 cases and 73 dead. 30 of those uh, who have been killed by COVID-19 were fluent speakers, primarily elders. Um, but as you mentioned, this is only one fight. Uh, Native nations face issues such as the destruction of sacred land, with things like telescopes, walls, private development. There are attacks on sovereignty in the courts, including the continued theft of our children. Uh, and of course, the um, missing and murdered indigenous women and missing and murdered indigenous people movements, uh, which are trying to address the enormous number of missing and murdered American Indian people. Uh, and I think those are a few of the, the primary issues uh, that we see a lot in the news these days. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And as well, because uh, since I joined TikTok over 2020, I don't know if it was just 2020 in general or just the very easy format of TikTok, but I, before your class, had never learned more about Native issues or Native problems before TikTok. Like, I learned more from there than I did in my public education system which is really just a huge disservice. Like I knew things were bad, but I never knew the specifics or the severity. Yeah, absolutely. And I do recommend TikTok. TikTok is used by a lot of American Indian people and indigenous people around the world. Mm -hmm. um, so I recommend finding those folks and following them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think that for me as well, I mean, I took your class, like we were talking about before the interview three years ago, which is one whole other thing that we could talk about that was, that was crazy that it was so long ago now um but i think that tiktok and the free flow of information is something that's really really important um like we saw at the end of the trump administration i'm not sure what exactly it was called but there was this big push to sort of edit um the mass american curriculum when it came to things such as history and colonialism and things like that um and we were also talking before the show about how i'm from a county called cherokee county um, in the Atlanta metro area, which is where the Trail of Tears originated in part. Um, and just the fact that I was going next to a school or going to school next to a place called Sequoia High School and learned and have learned more in the past year on TikTok in your class than I ever would have um, otherwise. And so I think that the free flow of information on the internet is really, really important um, because it also allows Native community, it, it allows us as non-BIPOC people to learn about the experiences of others but also for them to not be filtered um, by different sources and by history books. So I think that it's really, really important um, that all of this is coming out now. And I'm really interested to see how it's going to impact things in the future now that we have access um, to this type of information. Mm -hmm. Absolutely, absolutely. And uh, one thing sorry. I heard about was the Murdered and Missing Indigenous Women's Organization. I never heard about that before. Um, and I really didn't know how, like, it was talking about how Indigenous women are the most likely demographic to experience violence and sexual violence than pretty much any other demographic in the United States. And it's to a very strong degree. I think it was something like some 80%. Oh, yeah. Four, so four out of five Native women will be affected by violence today. Mm -hmm. uh, and the rate of... Um, sexual assault is extremely high for Native mm -hmm. in particular. Uh, so this is a very important movement that I highly encourage people to follow, people to look up. Um, yeah, yeah, mm -hmm. extremely important. And although it's focused, it began its focus on missing and murdered Indigenous women, um, it is important to point out that this has expanded to include um, missing and murdered Indigenous persons, which includes men, um, as American Indians are also the most likely to be murdered by police, right? Um, so including this broader narrative of violence against American Indian people that goes beyond the sexual assault. So I think it's important to uh, have the hashtag MMIW separate, but at the same time, acknowledge that this violence is more widespread. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And um, so just in general, what are some key ways that non-Native people 
can be good allies to the Native communities in the United States and Canada and Hawaii? Well, I think you all are doing most of it right here, right? This is a, a very, very good way uh, to acknowledge you. Um, when I talk to my students, there are a couple of things that I suggest. One, I suggest subscribing to a newsletter directly from a Native news source. So uh, one would be Native News Online. They do a once-a-day summary of all of the headlines in Indian country, and that will help you understand uh, what the current issues are in Indian country, and it's coming from Native voices. So you get to hear uh, what's actually happening on the ground. Uh, Native News Online also includes a section that's headlines from non-Native sources. So you can even get this kind of differing perspective on the same issues, uh, which I think mm -hmm. is really good. Uh, Indian Country Today is also uh, good. Their newsletter isn't as comprehensive, but they do a phenomenal job of keeping up with news. Uh, so one, educating yourself, and that's one of the easiest ways to do it. Uh, the second thing would be amplifying Native voices, uh, especially over social media. So when you do see these TikTok videos, uh, when you are following someone on Facebook or Twitter, um, retweet that. Right? Make sure that these Native voices are actually getting out and being heard. Um, mm -hmm. And for those of your friends and family that aren't on social media, you know, email them something. Talk about these issues at, you know, Thanksgiving or Columbus Day. Um, don't, don't hide from these things, right? Uh, get them out there and start amplifying voices. And that will be incredibly useful because right now, American Indian people are 1% of the population. So it's difficult for us to get a voice in mainstream media. Uh, but having these kind of amplifications happen helps incredibly. Uh, so don't underestimate the impact that that can have. Mm -hmm. I have one other question um, that's sort of related to what's happening now um, in different Native nations. Do you know anything about how the vaccine is being distributed, if it is or if it isn't? Because um, I know that it's been kind of confusing, like even for me to be able to find an appointment and figure out when I'm eligible and things like that. And since they're having such a large issue with COVID, in these nations, do you know anything about like what the vaccine distribution is looking like for them, if they're getting it at all? I do. Um, and right now I can say that it's actually very promising, uh, which is great news. Uh, the most recent news is that Johnson & Johnson wants a million vaccines in Indian country by the end of the month. Um, before that, because Native nations have this relationship with the federal government, um, which includes what's called Indian Health Services, uh, many Native nations were able to secure um, either Pfizer or Moderna um, when you know, the, the stage 1A began. Uh, so it is a slow process, but uh, many Native nations have been able to have access to the vaccine. Um, I was able to get my vaccine through Indian Health Services. Um, which I am very, very grateful for. <laughs> um, so as far as vaccine distribution, that's been great. Um, as far as uh, what happened last summer with other help, less great, uh, but staying in the moment, uh, the vaccine uh, does not seem to be held up in ways that we might expect with Indian Health Services. That's good to hear. Thank goodness. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> yeah, because it's just been chaotic because I I'm in phase 1b and so I could do I can start making my appointment on Monday and the stress of trying to go on a bunch of different websites and sign up before the time was taken and I had to reload it um so I know that for me personally it's been horrible horrible experience um so I'm glad to hear that especially with what the native nations have been going through um that they are getting hopefully unfettered access um to the vaccines that's good to hear um, so with that, DJ Iro, do you have any more questions? No, I mean, All right. is there anything else, Professor Lewis, would really like to talk about? If there's anything that we didn't hit in this interview that you'd just like to go over, we can do that. But if not, thank you so much for coming. I do have one question. Um, <laughs> I know that advising is coming up. Um, I've been getting a ton of emails from my advisor. 
um, about signing up for classes. And, and I know that a lot of our listeners are students. So Dr. Lewis, what are some of the classes that you're teaching next semester? Um, and hopefully students will be able to sign up. So every fall, I teach the American Indian Nations course. It's Anthropology 244. Uh, it does have a VSR and GSS overlay with it as well. Um, so that's every fall. And then I also teach 20th Century Southern Studies. Uh, that is uh, Southern Studies 302. I teach that each semester, uh, generally unless something comes up. Uh, and then spring semesters change. Right now I'm teaching a new class uh, called American Indian Geographic and it's American Indian Indigenous Comic Book Representation. Uh, so that class has been doing very, very well. Um, and occasionally, as one of our DJs knows, I do teach the large Anthropology 102 class. Uh, and I do include uh, Indigenous and American Indian representation in that. So if you're interested in learning a bit more, um, even though it's a general anthropology course, you will get to tip your toes into American Indian issues. Yeah, I definitely suggest I, it. I took it. It's very, very interesting. You should take it. <laughs> yeah, I took the I American Indian Nations course, and I have a little anecdote. Um, my, I was like cleaning out my desk after the semester ended last semester, um, and I thought I had accidentally thrown away my notebook from your course. Um, so I made my father go out with me in the middle of January or December, January, one of them, um, in like 930, 930 at night. And I made him hold a flashlight for me while I dug through the trash and then the recycling and then the trash again, all while my neighbors watched. Um, I have never done that for any other class. Uh, turns out it was inside the whole time and my mother had it in her hand when we came in. Uh, so good news is it's safe. Uh, bad news is I'm very anti like very familiar with uh, the inside of my garbage can now. Oh, um, but I'm glad that was a, there was a happy ending. Happy yeah, ending. but yeah, I've never done that for any other course. So definitely well, suggest it. At least your neighbors had some entertainment during these trying COVID times. Oh yeah, oh yeah, <laughs> they, get, they get their fair share out of us. I'm sure they do, especially from you. <laughs> All right, so with that, we have concluded our interview with the lovely Dr. Lewis. This entire interview, if you're just now tuning in or you can do it a little bit late, it will be um, up on our Facebook and on our podcast feed as well. Um, and with that, we are going to get into some more music provided by Dr. Lewis. Um, if you have any thoughts on this interview, you can call in. The number to our station is 803-576-9872. That's 803-576-WUSC. And we hope that you guys enjoyed this interview. Does anybody have any last words before we stop? No, just thank you for having me on and thank you for following and amplifying Native Voices. You're doing great work. Thank you. All right, guys, we are going to get into the music. So bye. <laughs>